This is The Premise, and I'm your host, Chad Thompson. Chad Thompson's the host. I'm the host. (laughs) I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson, the host. Hello and welcome to The Premise. I'm Jennifer Thompson, and today Chad and I are speaking with author Linda Olson about her memoir, Gone, a memoir of love, body, and taking my life back. I am especially pleased to talk with Linda today because Linda is not only an incredible writer and brave storyteller, she is also my friend. Linda and I took a writing class together. This was, oh, I don't know, what would you say, five years ago, Linda? Mm, At least yeah, maybe more. And and by the way, dear listeners, this class was taught by our very own Marnie Friedman, my co-founder at the San Diego Writers Festival. And well, you know, we really hit it off in this class. So Linda and a few other gals and I started our very own um, tight knit writing group. And we would meet once a week, share a glass of wine and some food and share our stories. Wait a minute. So there's a writing group Inside of a writing group? Well, exactly. Like writing so, groups all the way down? Well, here's the deal. We had to pay for the one at UCSD with oh. our instructor. So we decided to do more of like a critique, reading read and critique with wine and food and good company. Sounds like more wine, food and good company <laughs> than reading critique. They were long sessions sometimes. I felt sorry for Linda's husband, Dave, because he had to hide in the back and he's probably like, when are these women going to leave? But anyway, I digress. <laughs> So it kept us motivated to write and helped us to hone our stories with honest feedback. At least I think it was honest. Do you think it was honest, Linda? Without a doubt. Sometimes it hurt and sometimes it felt good and Mm -hmm. writing groups are so important for that very reason. Well, Linda, I am so proud of you. Holding this book in my hands makes me so happy. This book is honest and raw and full of love and laughter and moments so touching. I cry, not from sadness, but from the sheer joy found in the telling of your journey to take your life back. So, dear listeners, Linda is a mother of two. She is a wife. She is also a doctor. And she served as an award-winning professor of radiology at the University of California, San Diego, for 30 years. Now retired, Linda is a grandmother and an author. Oh, and I almost forgot, Linda is also a triple amputee. She lost her (laughs) arm. I know, just a small little detail. She lost her arm, her right arm, and both legs in an accident that changed her life. And today, folks, we get to hear her story. Her motto, if I can do it, you can do it. Get out and go. Linda Olson, welcome to The Premise. Thank you, Jennifer. This is something I've been looking forward to for quite a while now. It's very exciting to be able to share my story with you. And also, Jennifer, thank you so much for being part of my writing group, because I'm one of these writers who thinks everything is happy-go-lucky. And it took people like Jennifer to kick me in the butt once in a while and say, wait a minute, where's the feeling? Didn't that feel bad once in a while? Mm. So... Some of the things that came out from in, that are actually in the book are gratitude to my fellow writers who convinced me to have a stronger voice. So thank you. No, oh, yeah. Well, you know, you, the book is so good and it does have so much emotion. And, and, and I know that it took a lot for you to dig into that as you were writing because you really approach your life as, you know, everything's going to be okay. We're just going to make it work you know, as you did, and we'll talk more about. But in the writing, it came across as almost flat, 
because you were like, really, can you be that happy? And you really were. It was honest. It was honest happiness, right? Yep. So what was it like digging down deeper and trying to find some of that emotion that the reader could relate to um, and better understand your journey? Well, you know, I would come home from my writing groups. I had the writing group with you, and then I had the one with Zoe Garamani, which was even longer lived group that I was with. Mm-hmm. And I would come home and I would sit down with all the notes that I had taken on the printed out stories that we all shared with each other. And I would say, okay, I've got to say what they said here. They asked you, you frequently asked me the right questions to kind of say, tell me more about it. They didn't say, how did you feel? You would say, tell me more. And then they would kind of get me to go a little bit deeper. I think one other thing that helped a lot was I would take them home and I would tell my husband, I'd say, Dave, this is what they said. And he would look at me and he would Hmm. go back and he would retell that part of the story from his memory. And his memory is much different than mine. Interesting. Um, Much more visceral, much more emotional. And probably some of the things that I learned as we went on was the fact that he kind of started talking or he would sit down at the computer and start typing. And I would go away for a while and I'd come back and he was still at the computer and he was still typing. <laughs> and he doesn't put things in paragraphs. He just types single space, one big long page. Stream of consciousness <laughs> typing, right? It, it really was. It really was. And I was taken aback by some of them. In fact, what you'll see in the book, I took, I think there's four of his pieces that are short, mm-hmm. but they're very gut-wrenching. And the mm-hmm. one that tore me apart was one he wrote about going out and running every morning. He said he would leave at 4.30 in the morning. He'd run out um, Rose Canyon, which is along Interstate 5 in Claremont, and he'd go out there and cry. Mm-hmm. He had never told me he would go out there and cry every morning. He said that Aww. way it got him, let him work out his feelings, his anger. And to this Mm -hmm. day, he still has anger about it. He just thinks it was not fair that this happened. But, you know, that's life. And then he would come back, take a shower, get dressed, and go to work. And that was how he dealt with it every morning before his day started. And to read that, you know, 38, 39 years, whatever it was, after the accident, I just thought, you know, we did a good job of both being strong, probably maybe sometimes stronger than we should have been or needed to be, but it worked. And Mm. so the writing of the book, uh, you get my happy-go-lucky, which is true. It is how I work and how I live. Uh, But then we got his pulling me down once in a while and saying, remember, this is is how it was, which was good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that you two were so well-suited because you know, it sounds to me like he never wanted to feel sorry for himself, you know, especially since you're the one who lost your legs <laughs> and your arm, right? Yeah. And the idea that, you know, he would show that kind of emotion, like he had to, he had to stay strong for you, I'm sure. Well, it it, it goes both ways because early on within that first year, I remember more than once saying, why would he stick around? And when you read the book, you'll see one of my biggest insecurities, and I Mm. think it's true of just women in general, was, was he going to leave me? Mm -hmm. What could I do to keep him from leaving me? And it was a, 
it was a good motivating factor for me to stay happy and work hard. And be a good wife. And be a good wife. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and you know, he would say that that's what we all should be doing anyway. So we weren't being doing anything different than anybody else. Mm-hmm. But I remember going around the side of the house about a year after the accident in my wheelchair one day, and I just went over there and cried. And I wasn't much of a crier, but that one day I went and cried and I came back and I said, well, why are why are you sticking around? He said, well, think about this. If this had happened to me, what would you do? And I thought, oh. Of course. He said, you (laughs) may need my arms and my legs, but I need your spirit. Mm -hmm. And that put it into a perspective that made me realize that we both brought very different parts of our personality and our bodies Mm -hmm. to the team to make it work. And... My outgoing, bubbly, happy-go-lucky was good for him, and his, you know, stoic, work hard, put your head down, um, be organized, made it work for both of us. So it was, like you said, it was an uncanny and amazing combination that we both fed off of each other. I mean, that didn't make it easy all the time. In fact, sometimes that probably made it harder than it could have been otherwise because we have both of us have very strong personalities um, and are very independent people. But mm-hmm. I think that and you're is- both doctors. Yes. Yeah. It- so I'd like you to read the part of the first chapter. And by the way, the title of this chapter is The Day Our Life Went Off the Rails. You got a punny go. chapter title there. Yeah, I know. I love it. <laughs> Literally. We've got to move. I screamed at the driver as I shook the back of the seat. Get off the track, Jack. A train is coming. I saw the monster bearing down on us through the left side windows of a borrowed VW van. The whistle's crescendo was deafening. We're going to die. I'm only 29. I'm not ready to die. In seconds, the men had clambered out over the front passenger side door. I clawed at the metal sliding door handle next to me and yanked it back. Nothing happened. Dave, his brother, and their dad had been riding in the front seat. His mother, sister-in-law, and I were in the middle seat behind them. The sound of my pounding heart blocked all the noise except the voice in my head. Dave is out there somewhere. I grabbed the handle again and jerked hard. Nothing. The front door. All I had to do was jump forward, slide out, stand up, and run. I can make it. I catapulted over the front seat, landed awkwardly, and before I could catch myself, tumbled out the open passenger door onto the tracks. The only thing standing between me and the train was the van, with my mother and sister-in-law still inside. I scrambled frantically to right myself. Suddenly, My chest felt tight, and I was lifted off the tracks. I opened my eyes. Dave's face was inches from mine. His strong arms were wrapped around me. He's going to save me. I could hear again. Dave was gasping for breath. His arms tightened around me, and then he was gone. In one earth-shaking, deafening instant, the locomotive smashed into the van, pushing me down onto my back across the track. The blue sky above me disappeared as the van folded over me, blocking the color and light as the train hit it. Time morphed. Seconds jumbled and tumbled. 
Time ran away and disappeared. I took a deep breath and held it. If I let it out, I might never breathe again. I must hold it, hold it, hold it, till death do us part. The train pushed me down the tracks. I felt nothing. When it stopped, I heard new sounds, human voices, indecipherable words. I didn't care what they were saying. If I could hear them, I was still alive. Hmm. Wow. You know, I, I still cry every time. I've, I've read it several times. <laughs> and every time I read that scene, I still just cry. Oh, my gosh. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, were your, your mother-in-law and your sister-in-law okay? Yes. Thank you for asking. Um, interesting, we were in the middle, that middle section of the van, and when that train impacted with the van, they were thrown back into the luggage compartment of the mm. van. And when everything came to a stop, they opened, or somebody opened the back van door, and they got out. They were fine. Huh. So, wow. yeah, Dave ended up having a fractured ankle, and he got knocked out as he got thrown back, and my everybody else was fine. So, of the six of us, one minor set of injuries with Dave and then my amputations. So, yeah. Freak. Freakish. Yeah. Triple triple amputations. And are you right-handed or left-handed? Well, I was right-handed. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the club. Oh, it's a As far as lefties club. go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, back to my question. You're in the hospital and Dave comes in and you say, I wouldn't blame you if you leave me. That I was prepared for. I spent, I think I got out of the OR about three or four in the morning and I stayed awake in the ICU. Now, what you need to know is I was in Salzburg, Austria at the hospital. So mm. it was a dark ICU room and everybody around me was speaking German. So I couldn't talk to anybody. So my thoughts were my own at that point. And I kept thinking, what am I going to do? I knew I was awake. I never lost consciousness. So I knew that I had lost my legs and my arm as I went, got in the ambulance and went on to the hospital. And I just kept thinking, I'm 29 years old. We're, we're young. We've not been married very long, not quite two years. He's not going to want to stick around with a very severely disabled wife because that's not what he married. I mean, he married a doctor. He was going to have this wonderful life. So the first thing I said when he walked in the next morning is I looked at him and smiled at him and said, I've been thinking and I'll understand if you don't want to stick around. And he just stood there for maybe <laughs> 10 seconds. It didn't even take him long to think of it. And he just said, I didn't marry your arms and your legs. If you can do it, I can do it. Mm. And he held my hand and I just thought it was just like there was this electricity. It was just this is this may work. And I think that was the moment that I thought if he can do what he says, and if I can do what I say, we can do this. But um, that was became our mantra. If you can do it, I can do it. And I didn't mm. carry your arms and your legs. So yeah, in fact, that was what I had the working title of the book for right. many years. Um, and then a very wise editor changed it to the current title, which is much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were in your residency, I believe. Yes. So coming back to the United States, 
Did it occur to you ever that you had to give up your dreams of, of becoming a doctor? Oh, no. In fact, <laughs> I would I would say that that was probably one of the biggest things that I could close my eyes and still see. I could mm-hmm. see myself sitting in a reading room, which is where radiologists read out their films, and I could see myself sitting there. All I needed was one hand to hold a microphone to dictate. I needed a head and a brain and two eyes to be able to see the films. And I kept thinking from the day to one, I thought I can still be a radiologist. I didn't know what else I could be, hmm. but I thought if I can get to the point where I can walk or use a wheelchair or whatever, I can go back to being a radiologist. The luck of the draw was as a fourth year medical student, I had actually been considering emergency room medicine, OBGYN, and Mm. psychiatry. Mm. And I took an elective rotation in my fourth year, uh, one month rotation out of Los Angeles at the White Memorial Medical Center. And I met an incredible radiologist, my mentor, Dr. Isaac Sanders. And in that month of radiology, I thought, wow, this is, this is what I want to be. And it was like, that was probably some unknown hand guiding me into something that would eventually be something I could do because you don't, you don't need legs and arms to be a radiologist. So, so I was lucky. And that was Mm -hmm. what kept me going was that I, I know I can do this. So. Yeah, I mean, if you'd decided to be an OBGYN, that would have been a little, <laughs> a little tough. Oh, I'd have been doing something different. <laughs> so, you know, I've seen you walk. Um, you went through years of, of learning how to walk on your prosthetic legs. Uh, not actually years. It took me about four months. Really? Uh, yeah. Of course. I had nothing <laughs> else to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I was very young. I was... 29, and I was very strong and athletic. Mm-hmm. And when I was medevac back to the Naval Regional Medical Center in San Diego, I met a physical therapist there, Donna Pavlik, who was my age and was even more determined than I was. And between the two of us, um, we just worked our butts off until I learned to walk. And she, I got my first set of legs, um, I remember, during the World Series of 1979 and they brought them up to the hospital room that night and there must have been 20 staff and doctors and nurses that came in with them to kind of see what would happen once they put them on and I stood up and it was hard but that's all I had to do for those first few months I was in the hospital for two months at the Navy hospital and I'd go down twice a day for physical therapy so I probably spent at least four hours three or four hours a day getting stronger and Donna once we decided that I had gotten good enough to go out of the physical therapy into the grounds around the hospital, she kind of laid out a walking path where there were chairs or benches that we could stop and rest. And our goal became to, for me to be able to walk a mile. And mm-hmm. at the end of the four months, and I had already gone out of the hospital by then, I reached the point where I could walk a mile. I, you know, was walking, holding onto her arm and she had a belt and a, you know, a, a rope kind of like thing holding on to me but yeah that was my goal and i think at the time i didn't realize how unusual that was for a bilateral above knee amputee this is not, my my yeah. legs are off above the knee so i had to learn to walk it's like having stilts but there's a <laughs> joint in them where you have to pick your leg up hike your hip up swing the leg out and bring it down and lock it so 
Yeah, so I learned how to walk within four months. Um, and then uh, during that first year that I was on medical leave, um, I got pregnant towards the end of that. And as I started a slow weight gain, that helped me get stronger because I kept thinking, okay, I've got to keep walking through this pregnancy. And um, I think that was one of the one of the biggest obstacles that I overcame was being able to walk that quickly and becoming a very strong walker. Um, mm. Yeah, There's some wonderful photographs in the book and on your website too, lindakolson.com where, you know, there's a picture of you doing a pull-up, a one-armed pull-up, <laughs> and you and your prosthetics. And in fact, there's a video, there's a couple of videos. I would really encourage our listeners to visit your website. There's one video of you doing push-ups. This is just a couple of years ago. And I don't remember what, how many push-ups you did, but it's such a fantastic video. I did 21. <laughs> 21 push-ups. Well, I can't even manage four. Well, right? And she has one arm, yeah. Well, if somebody's got a camera on you, you can do a few more than you can do more. <laughs> the pressure is high. You don't want to yeah. stop in the middle and fall on your face, so. <laughs> well, well, that's awesome. But there's another video that is just, the world is so fortunate to have it that I think some students did back in the the black and white video oh yeah when was that taken um that was during the end of that year of rehab and after i went back to work at the white memorial and while i was pregnant and it was made by the son of a dear family friends a family that we'd grown up with and he was a film student at usc and he and one of his buddies chose mm. to do a documentary about me and they followed us around during the last probably couple months of my pregnancy and then after Tiffany was born getting the footage for this film it's and I so remember precious. oh and I didn't want to do it Dave was again one of the things <laughs> he said oh yes we're going to do that and I go I don't want to do that you know my whiny me have but someone it, follow me around and all my awkwardness yeah exactly great <laughs> and you know I'm pregnant and you know but it sure. turned out to be such a wonderful memory of mm. something that you can't recreate unless you're doing it at the time but they did a great job of showing mm. me being pregnant and then leaving uh, you know at the end with holding tiffany and you know life is going to life was going to be good this is what we all want you know and even if yeah. you don't have legs and an arm if you can sit there holding your child and your husband's there with you you know this is this is life this is what we mm -hmm. are working for so yeah it's cool it's a it's a real gift, but you know it's such a a window into that time of your life, and how you got around, and you know just the little things that Dave would do to make life easier, so you could get your wheelchair up in the door. Because you know at that time it wasn't wheelchair accessible necessarily. He made it wheelchair accessible, but and you gardening. It's such a great video. Um, you know, in writing this book, did you ever just feel like why you know no one's going to want to read this book? Oh my, yes. In fact, um, you know, probably 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people kept saying, oh, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I kept saying, no, I don't, I'm not going to do that. Nobody would care about it. We just have a normal life. And mm -hmm. that was my perception. I was going to work, we had children, we did what everybody else did. Why would you write a book about that? And it wasn't until... You know, the kids were grown and you could start looking back at it. And I thought, you know, maybe we do have a message that you don't see out there very often. And I took some time and I went to the library and I looked online and I found books written by people that have had accidents or amputees. 
they were all written within a briefer, more brief time period after the accident, maybe a year, three years, four years. And I thought, how do you know how their life turned out? Maybe somebody like me should write the book that's 35 or 40 years later that you turn around and say, here's the proof Mm. that you can have children, you can have a wonderful career, you can travel the world, and I'm going to show you that it can be done so that people might be able to look at their spouse or their loved loved one who might be getting ready to run away and say, I don't want to spend my life with somebody that's disabled. And they can look at it and say, oh, we can still Mm. have a good time. And that's what really prompted me to do it was I wanted people to see you could have an you could come close to having a normal life. And I know I've had people criticize me for saying I have a normal life. Well, I do have a normal life. And that was what I wanted. So, Mm. You know, when you got pregnant, not everyone in your family was really um, supportive, maybe is the word. Tell us about that experience and the fears of, you know, how are we going to do this? Well, again, it was an unplanned pregnancy. But Dave was absolutely ecstatic. (laughs) Uh, We were back. In fact, it was nine months after the accident. We'd gone back to Germany to see Dave's parents who were still living in Germany. His dad was in the Navy and he was stationed in Stuttgart. And when we came home, I thought, oh, I think I'm pregnant. And I didn't tell anybody for a while. And when I finally told my mom, I was probably through the end of the first trimester. And my mother and I were very close and there was just, she was very silent. She just looked at me and I said, what's wrong? And she just, she said, well, what happens if Dave leaves you? I just don't see how you're going to be able to take care of a baby. And of course, she's verbalizing the fears that I had already thought about, but mm. convinced myself, kind of tamped them down and said, you know, it's going to work. We're going to make this work. But that was her big fear was how can you raise children by yourself? Um So that insecurity, and as we worked our way through it, we realized I would always need help. You can't put a child in a car seat if you are, you know, don't have legs and only one arm. It's really hard to do. So we knew we would always require a team, you know, people that would be working with us. Um, Dave's parents, we were close to them and they were a huge part of our lives. Um, And we had to have live-in help. Because what realistically what I came to realize was that I couldn't do very many things at home by myself. I was much more efficient and effective and productive at work because I could drive to work, get out of my car, walk down the hall, sit down, read films, teach, talk to doctors, talk to patients, Mm. go home and do almost everything at work on my own without help. Whereas when I would go home, I needed somebody with me. So um, I took advantage of what I could do well, and we learned how to find people to help us for the other things. Now, it seems like it's a, like a differentiation between manual labor and intellectual labor. Mm. Yes, and how lucky I was. And I, I spent a lot of time telling young people um, how important an education is because you never know where you're going to find yourself in life. And if you've got the best education you can have, it will give you that opportunity to recreate your life and go the direction you need to when the unexpected happens, which is where we found ourselves. So, Yeah. 
before that, you lived by yourself because you were still finishing up your residency, I believe. Right. And you were living in, I think, in Los Angeles. Is that yes. right? Mm-hmm. And you would take the train and you had your own apartment. So, I mean, you'd already been, you know, you had autonomy mm-hmm. and, you know, you'd proven that you could do everything on your own. I always think that must have been the scariest part is, is living in that apartment by yourself for a year, knowing that you're it. <laughs> um, you know, we had practiced all the things that I thought, all the, what they call the activities of daily living, the ADLs. Mm-hmm. The White Memorial Medical Center had adapted a first floor apartment for me on their campus there where they had a high rise apartment building for house staff. And I was very cautious. I mean, I would use a wheelchair at night once I would get home from work. I would eat my meals at the hospital so I didn't need to cook, you know, lots of foods. Mm. I would work, I'd come back, I'd study, I'd go to bed get up and go back to work and come home and study. Mm-hmm. So I lived a very careful existence. I wasn't driving. I wasn't going anywhere. Dave would come up on the weekends to visit me, or I'd get on the train and go home for the weekend. So it was a very limited life, but I was studying for my boards. I was pregnant, and I was finishing my residency. So I was really focused, and I didn't miss it. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. wow. It's almost monastic in the way it you're... was. It truly <laughs> was. And, but it, my, it was finishing my goal. And my goal was to be independent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now, as you and I speak, I'm up here in Truckee, Lake Tahoe, and Dave, my husband, is off in Oregon with his friends hunting. And this is the way I wanted my life to be. I wanted to be able to go places by myself. I wanted him to go off and have his life and be able to you know, do things on our own and Mm -hmm. be excited to see each other when we get back together in three or four days. So, right. Yeah. It's beautiful how independent you both are, you know, in terms of your career and, and your hobbies. And it's really, I think that's probably a strength in in every relationship, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but a little unexpected in one where, you know, one person is a, a triple amputee. But you do, you walk, you drive. I mean, you are very um, capable to take care of yourself and you've adapted all the things in your life to work. One of the things that I think is the coolest is the amount of travel that you and Dave have, have done. And, you know, listeners, if, if you were a triple, triple amputee, you might think, well, if I'm going to go on vacation, I'm going to make sure I go someplace where, you know, there's a lot of amenities and... You know, <laughs> I'm going I'm to stay in really fancy hotels where people deliver things to me and I don't have to do anything, you know, cook, clean. But you, you actually didn't do that. You went camping and chose to go on long hikes. You've been to Machu Picchu. <laughs> mm-hmm. Talk to us about your vacation choices. Well, this, again, came back to wanting to have this normal life. And mm-hmm. as a child and teenager, I grew up in Southern California, and I was a very much of an outdoor person. And I hiked and camped, and I wanted my children to do that. Um, and that was one of those things that kind of lurked for years after the accident. We didn't go to the mountains because I was afraid. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to be discouraged. I didn't want to be disappointed and become depressed about what I couldn't do. When 
I think it must have been probably almost 10 years after the accident. One of my college roommates called and said, we've got to go out and take the kids and go camping. (laughs) And we sat down and planned a canoeing trip to Yellowstone (laughs) Lake. Awesome. Brian was five and Tiffany was eight. And they had two children that were eight and 13. And we spent months preparing for this. But we figured that if we did a water type trip where they just plop me into a canoe and paddle and we get to a place and we camp and then we paddle in the canoe the next day, it should work. We didn't have any portaging. So it was a very um, well thought out trip for four days. And when we got to the end of it, we realized this was going to be our future. And right. when we came home, Dave figured out a way to carry me on his back. He took a hunter's backpack. You know how you might carry <laughs> That's, that's deer not morbid and, at all. It, well, no, he put me on it. Yeah, I'm his deer. I'm his little deer. And I whisper sweet nothings in his ear as he carries me. And over the next few years, we figured out how to be able to, for him to carry me short distances if you're kayaking or canoeing, and you got to go from one body of water to the other, you portage. And we did trips up in the Quetico, which is up in northern or north of Boundary Waters in Minnesota, up in Canada, where we uh, were actually able to be gone for 10 days at a time with just the eight of us. And we might see only one or two other people the entire time. And we would probably, our trips were about 100 miles of canoeing and camping out and cooking and fishing and more things um, outdoor and wilderness than most people that we knew. And we mm-hmm. loved it. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, it was people carrying me and I butt walked in the dirt and we just, <laughs> we just had a good time. <laughs> there's this, we're going to have to get back to the butt walking because that's awesome. But there's this one story you tell of you're on a hiking trail and you're in the backpack and these people are walking toward Dave and they see this man with a backpack, but all of a sudden they realize there's this head sort of bobbing up and down behind him. Like, wait, what's happening? Tell us, tell us that story. One of our favorite stories was the trip we took up to Quetico. And this was a 10 day trip where I was still rather naive about how this was working and I was determined to look normal. So we would start these (laughs) 10 day wilderness trips with me and my legs on. (laughs) What does that mean to be? Oh, normal. Okay. I'm like, what does it mean to be normal? You mean wear your legs? Wear my legs. Exactly. Got it. Got it. So I would wear my legs and Dave put me in the backpack. This was the first time we really had used the backpack on a long trip. And I'm facing backwards. My legs are up and it's 102 degrees. Oh, And we man. go maybe half a mile and I am miserable. Dave is having to climb up these big type boulders in the trail. And we're realizing that we are setting up, we're getting ready to fail. So I say, we got to stop. And in fact, I probably screeched. I probably said, yeah, I can't do this. Stop. You got to stop. Because that's the way I do these things. <laughs> and we sat down, got me out of the backpack and took my legs off and just left them along the trail. <laughs> awesome. But walked back into the little backpack on his back and strapped myself in and he carried me on down trail to the next river or body of water. And this is up in Canada. They were sat me down. I'm in my underpants now and a t-shirt and I'm sitting here with all the mosquitoes around. It's muddy. I'm sitting on the edge of the water. It's just kind of swampy. And a few minutes after Dave goes back down the trail to pick up the stuff, 
couple of men walk by and they look at me <laughs> and all of a sudden they just burst out laughing and they just go, oh, here's the other half of that body that we saw. <laughs> they had gone past my legs, which oh. were lying along the trail with the shoes on them and the jeans <laughs> on them. And that was, you know, from the one half the waist down. And here I am sitting in the mud up there in my underpants, plotting, <laughs> swatting the flies. So yeah, oh, those are awesome. kind of stories that you get to create when you're doing these silly things. But <laughs> well, that's the thing is like you have access to some of the funniest encounters and stories, you know, and you tell them with such joy. I mean, the book really is so fun to read because it's funny. And there's just these moments that, you know, most people could never ever experience, right? So it's like the benefits of being a triple amputee, you got to be really funny. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about butt walking. What, what exactly is butt walking? <laughs> All right. Okay. If you take your legs off and you look at me or you look at me once my legs are off, I'm this little egg-shaped structure. At least that's the way I always thought of myself. <laughs> and I may be, well, after the accident, I weighed 73 pounds. And we actually, while we were still in the hospital, sat down and tried to figure out how much each leg weighed and how much my arm weighed by subtracting it from what I used to weigh, which is about 105 pounds, and go down to 73 pounds. Of course, we did. Of course we did. <laughs> the legs weighed this, the arm weighed that. So um, until you realize that the only thing you can do is sit or learn to use legs, you're either going to be in a wheelchair or you're going to learn to use legs. And if you don't have your legs on and you get out of your wheelchair, you're going to be on the ground. So... If you imagine sitting on the ground, putting your legs out in front of you and trying to go forward, we call that butt walking. But I've got a big advantage here because I don't have ankles. I don't have knees. I don't have, you know, three feet of body components sticking out in front of me. So when I sit on the floor and decide that I'm going to butt walk to get somewhere, I kind of lift one cheek up and you kind of lift another one up and you just kind of go down the across to the floor like that. I can go reasonably fast. It used to bug the heck out of our kids because when they were little kids, we used to call butt walk races. And they all of us would get on the floor and we'd go, one, two, three, go. And I would just scoot across the floor and they would just get angry and one cry. And, oh, that's not fair. It's not fair. And I'd say, of course it's not fair. You've got legs and I don't and I'm winning. <laughs> so, yeah. And I'm not going to let you win. That's awesome. Well, and I've had butt walk races with all kinds of people. A couple of years ago. Tiffany, who now is, you know, in her 30s, she brought a bunch of girls from the water polo team down her, you know, 12 and 13 year old girls anywhere at our house. And they got down on the floor with me and we had butt walk races and it bugged the heck out of these very competitive little girl water polo players <laughs> because they couldn't beat me. And there was one girl who was so competitive, she wouldn't give in. She'd make me do it over and over. And then she'd get up next to me and she'd come over with her elbows and she'd dig into me to try and knock me down <laughs> so that she could go faster than me. So we kind of were fighting on the, our butt walk race, but you know, wow. do whatever you got to do to make, make yourself win. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not very many kids get to talk about their butt walk races with their mom, who always wins. Mm -hmm. You know, let's talk a little bit about your children. So there's a prologue and an epilogue to your book. Can, can you talk about those two pieces and, you know, what they mean to you and why you decided to include them? I think they are the best part of the book. Hmm. 
The prologue is the story that I may have alluded to at the beginning, that Tiffany was taking the writing class online at UCLA, and she wrote the story about me. And as I was getting to the point of putting this together, I went back and pulled it out of my drawer and looked at it again, and I kept thinking, this is why I wrote the book, mm-hmm. because of that story. And I put it at the front because I thought, when you look at your adult children and you hear their voice and you hear them talking about looking at a set of pictures of you before and after the accident and expressing what it was like to be your child and never having known you as a normal able-bodied person and to only have known you as a triple amputee, it didn't make any difference. That's who you were. That's what they were used to. And it was so beautifully written that I just thought, She's, she's said what I would never be able to say, and she's telling you from her perspective that this was, a, this was an okay way to grow up. And then at, <clears throat> thinking I've got a piece by one child, what am I going to do for the other? You've got to treat them exactly alike. <laughs> Our son, um, two or three years after he had graduated from college, decided maybe he should have gone to medical school. Duh. I had told him that every year since he had been in high school. So, as <laughs> mom is always right. Yeah, he, exactly. You know, I, I would, what I would do is every year when he was in high school and on, one time a year, I would say, Brian, this is your mom talking. You should really think about going to medical school. And it was a one sentence talk. And we would, he would look at me and he'd go, oh, okay, I don't want to go to medical school. And we would do it every year, every year, every year. So he eventually decided he should have gone to medical school. So his personal (laughs) statement was a beautifully written piece about his parents and what it had been to grow up in a family with a mom who didn't have legs and arm and how they had not impacted, had not kept her from doing anything, how they had spent their growing up years out in the wilderness, which none of their friends were able to do and how his mom had had a career-winning, uh, award-winning career, and it had not kept her from going on and being a doctor, and what his dad had taught him about, you know, that a, a person is more than their body. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and I thought, this is the backside of this book. These are my yeah. children, you know, 35 years later, being the proof that you can have this life and you can raise children and this will turn out better than you thought. So that's the prologue and the epilogue. And our daughter, Tiffany, is 39. She has a 14-year-old daughter now. They live up in Davis. She does outcomes analysis, evalu- statistical analysis, evaluation at UC Davis. Um, and our son, Brian, just finished his general surgery residency in Honolulu. He actually went back and went to medical school at UCSD. He just got married in October to a wonderful young lady, hmm. um, Marissa Yoshida, and they are now living in Los Angeles while he does a fellowship. So we have an awesome family. And yeah, yeah, I, you do. They grew up, and I'm sure that there were days that they thought their mom was just like every other mom, useless. But as David told me when I first got pregnant with Tiffany, he said, you know, it doesn't matter who we are. Our kids are going to hate us. They're going to think we're dinosaurs. That's what kids do, and ours won't be any different, but it'll turn out okay. And he was right. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, 
Dave is such a hero to me because he's just such a, a positive, strong, beautiful force. And, you know, your relationship is so beautiful and it comes through, really comes through in the pages, you know, of, of how you supported each other. And, you know, the fact that you bookended your book with, with Tiffany and Brian's stories um, it was really poetic and beautiful. It, you couldn't have planned that better. No. <laughs> and we didn't plan it that way. It just turned out that way as it was going along, that they were the things that would just polish it. Yeah. 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 Linda, um, I want to tell our readers that Gone was picked for the November-December Local Author Spotlight Book Club by the San Diego Writers Festival. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I had no no say in that. I actually had no idea that they had chosen you. I am you know one of the co-founders, um, but we have a board who chose the book, and I was so tickled <laughs> to hear that your book had been chosen. So. This means all of our listeners need to go out there and buy this incredible book. Again, the title is Gone, A Memoir of Love, Body, and Taking Back My Life by Linda K. Olson. Um, I'm a, obviously a huge fan of yours. I, I love the book. I, I think it's important for so many reasons because, like you said, you know, telling the story just the story itself is is one thing and i do think it's fascinating and it's an incredible story but it's the the story is really about how there's the message that you can do this you can no matter what life hands you you can do this you know you've proven that throughout your entire life and that's why i think everyone should read this book um plus it's entertaining and and it's funny um so thank you thank you so much for writing it for having the courage to write it Thank you, and uh, I'm glad it's done. Mm-hmm. And I hope that <laughs> I hope that it does what you said. I hope that it makes people take courage and move on and live the life that they want to live and take charge of it. So that's mm-hmm. that's our wish. Well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with Chad and I today. This has been a real joy and an honor. Dear listener, you can learn more about Linda and buy her book at lindakolson.com. Follow her on Facebook at Author Linda K. Olson and on Instagram at Linda K. Olson. This has been another episode of The Premise. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at podpremise and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, be safe out there, friends, and remember to get out and go. If Linda Olson can do it, so can you. Thanks for listening.